Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. The corruption case against businessman Emilio Lozoya threatens to turn Mexican politics and business upside down, with everybody, including President Andres Manuel López Obrador, weighing in on what will happen next. López Obrador is a talented politician. He's going to be using the investigation to try to change the climate of public opinion against certain groups, interests, or political adversaries, including the opposition in Congress. It's like deja vu. A major figure from the Latin American business world gets swept up in an anti-corruption investigation, cuts a deal with prosecutors, and promises to tell everything he knows potentially implicating a huge swath of the government and the business world. This time, it's not Marcelo Odebrecht in Brazil, but Emilio Lozoya, the former CEO of Mexico's state oil firm Pemex. Lozoya has been accused of accepting millions of dollars in bribes in what is ironically an outgrowth of the Odebrecht and car wash investigations that first had their origins in Brazil starting six years ago. But there are lots of open questions on this one. Can Mexico pursue this case in the same way Brazil, Peru, and other countries did? Or will it fall short? Or is the case completely different in too many ways? Is there a political element to the investigation, given the way President Andres Manuel López Obrador, popularly known as AMLO, rode a wave of anti-corruption sentiment into office in 2018 and has now frequently inserted himself in the Lozoya case? Is this at the end of the day, just a convenient distraction from dismal news about Lopez Obrador's handling of violence, the economy, and the coronavirus outbreak. There's lots to unpack here. And to help us, we've got a great guest. I'm joined by Eduardo Borges, the executive director of Transparencia Mexicana. Eduardo, thanks for joining us. I mean, to start off, it would just be interesting to hear, I mean, these comparisons that get made from those of us who've been following the Latin American anti-corruption story for years. How does this one strike you as different from, you know, the Lava Jato investigations that we've seen in other countries, uh, including most prominently Brazil? Well, thank you for the kind invitation, Brian. I think uh, I'm going to Use one word, one expression that you already have included in this conversation, which is deja vu. This is not the first time in Mexico that a former CEO of Pemex is prosecuted. At least in the past 25 years, this is the third time that a prosecution against a former CEO of Pemex has been conducted. So this is not entirely new for Mexico or for the connections between politics and anti-corruption. Probably what is new is the, as you were suggesting, is the international connection in one of the angles of the Emilio Lozoya case with Odebrecht. This angle is particularly simple to explain because, as you know, the Department of Justice in the U.S. already found uh, Odebrecht responsible of paying bribes in Mexico. And the only missing link between Lozoya and the investigation in the U.S. is the decision of the Mexican authorities to collaborate with the Brazilian authorities so they can you know, come to a settlement with Odebrecht and find the decodifier of the five or six names that were already mentioned in the settlement in U.S. court. So in many ways, that's the only connection with Odebrecht up to this point. And it's messy, as you were also suggesting, Brian, because 
we are talking at least about three different cases when we're talking about Lozoya. One is the Odebrecht connection. A second one is involved with money laundering in an operation called in Spanish agronitrogenados. That's expression of the plant that was allegedly part of a money laundering scheme. And a third a possible route of investigation involves possible bribes to secure the energy reform six years ago under the Peña Nieto administration. So I think it's uh, it's messy because it involves a lot of issues and it has become, as you were also saying, a political circus in Mexico. Well, and so let me ask you an even messier question about a messy situation, which is, I think, the you know, the question that everybody's trying to figure out the answer to, it's a simple one, but how much of this case, or I suppose these cases, is being driven by politics? How much of it is being driven by a president, Lopez Obrador, who has put, you know, anti-corruption was a central part of his appeal. You know, his campaign was all about raging against the mafia del poder, the, you know, the various powers who ruled Mexico for decades. And he kind of needs some, you know, some trophies to show. I mean, how how would you explain to our audience, which is an educated Latin American, mostly audience, how would you explain to them the role that Lopez Obrador has had in this case, if at all? Well, despite the fact that now we have in Mexico a fully autonomous, in constitutional terms, attorney general's office headed by Alejandro Gertz, and he's an independent attorney general, which is something new for Mexico. No, This is part of the anti-corruption reforms of 2016. López Obrador is a talented politician. He was educated under the PRI style of conducting politics, so he perfectly knows the drill. He may not affect directly the investigations, but he's going to play with the investigations politically as much as he can. What does that mean in practical terms? What is AMLO doing? Well, he's he's actually using the investigation. Probably he's not directing it or affecting it in terms of, of due process, but he's going to be using the investigation to try to change the climate of public opinion against certain groups, interests, or political adversaries, including the opposition in Congress. Let me provide a very concrete example. There is no formal charges now or an open investigation about the possibility of uh, senators and congresspeople receiving money to pass the energy reform back in 2013 and 14. But from the public opinion perspective, it already happened because the president has been immensely talented in suggesting and quoting Lozoya's declaration which are not part of the investigation, but he's quoting him all the time, saying Lozoya openly says he paid bribes to senators and Congress people back in 2013 and 14. So, you know, it's not an open investigation. They haven't started to disclose the legal conditions of this possibility. But in practical terms, everyone, every single political analyst, every single newspaper has to deal with the fact that the president is quoting Lozoya and Lozoya is providing a very interesting script for a political novel. So I think here we are in the best scenario for López Obrador to play with the available information in the best possible way for reducing the political capacity of the opposition in Congress and preparing everything for the 2021 election. As you know, President López Obrador is absolutely fascinated by electoral processes. 
and he started preparing for the midterm elections, which are going to happen in 2021, since day one. No, Every single day is a campaign day for López Obrador, and this is the perfect scenario. No? When you're quoting Lozoya, even if the investigation is not on their course. And just to be clear, those are those are midterm elections that are taking place in 2021. Uh, López Obrador has a six-year term and, and cannot be reelected. Let me ask you about, you know, you're talking here, Eduardo, about the politics of the case and the way that López Obrador and perhaps other politicians are also are, are, are using this case. But I've been struggling to understand where this will go legally, right? And I want to be delicate in the way I phrase this, partly because you know, I just want to be respectful in talking about the Mexican judicial system. America's Society and the Council of the Americas, uh, which is the organization that publishes America's Quarterly, also publishes a, a, an annual index called the Capacity to Combat Corruption Index. And it, it really has given some disappointing scores to Mexico in recent years in terms of its ability to detect and ultimately punish corruption. And I have to say, a lot of the people that I've spoken to expect, the sort of their baseline scenario, is that this will be a very noisy case that might play itself out in the political stage and the media stage for quite a long time. But for various reasons, including the difficulty involved in plea bargain deals, few of them actually expect it will result in much in the way of convictions. Do you agree with that? Well, they are going to find one one person that is going to be responsible for, you know, covering that position, which is Emilio Lozoya himself. No? That's the magic of this case. No, They already have the guilty party from the very beginning. Meaning he'll be the fall guy, is what you're saying? Yes, he will be the first one. And obviously, he's going to provide enough evidence for a part of the network. So probably they are going to be prosecuted and charged with criminal accusations. But, you know, the, the thing is that I'm not that optimistic about finding justice at the end of the trial. They are going to be responsible people, some detentions, but there is not going to be asset recovery. There is not going to be justice in the terms that a lot of voters in 2018 expected, which is different from political revenge, Brian. We are used to have people prosecuted for corruption in Mexico. Six years ago, this was exactly the same conversation we were having about Elvester Gordillo. At the end of the administration, a lot of things happened and she was released. We're expecting something very similar. Emilio Lozoya is going to be found responsible. He's going to be probably in a certain level of commodity for dealing with this case. He's going to provide a lot of information and especially a good political script. But, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about a group of 10 to 15 people that are going to be involved and some with administrative charges, some of them criminal but there is only one condition for that to happen, and is the economic crisis in Mexico doesn't become a liability for the president. No, if we are entering and we're entering that scenario, Brian, of an economic crisis that damages the president's reputation, he is gonna probably change the expected scenario into a more dramatic one. That's the reason why he's bringing all this discussion of prosecuting former presidents and doing public consultations. Brian and, you know, the audience perfectly knows that it's not necessary to do a public consultation to prosecute a person that is possibly responsible of a crime, but he's going to be trying to change the script to protect his presidency and his legacy. And President López Obrador aims very high in terms of historic legacy, 
So if things become complicated through an economic crisis, then he's going to shake whatever he can shake to make this a bigger case and a bigger network that is being prosecuted. So, you know, the current scenario is the one that you were suggesting. Very limited asset recovery and the sense that justice was not really made in terms of a historic change. That's fascinating because you're basically saying the worse things get in Mexico, the more people are going to go to jail. But even even in that scenario, and back to my original question here, we're not talking about a massive dramatic parade of the leading names of the business world and politics into jail in the way that we saw in Brazil in 2015 and 2016. Right. It's going to be very dosified because it's driven by politics, not necessarily by the complexities of the case. Neither we're going to see something like the case of Peru, in which the independence of the Fiscalia, Domingo Perez, was really something to admire and to follow, and that is still going after five, now four, because of the suicide of one of them, former presidents and a whole network. Or, you know, bringing the Fujimori case, which I think is the most interesting one in Latin America. They were actually dismantling the network of business people, Congress people, and, and even the president. They were filing charges against 1,200 people. No? That's the whole network of corruption during the Fujimori years in Peru. We are not expecting that. No, We're talking about something very dosified, politically driven, and the time framework, even for the legal cases, is going to be dramatically affected by the electoral calendar. I want to talk about the policy ramifications of the Lozoya case. You know, Amlo has used the case already as an opportunity in his public statements to revisit the energy policies passed under former President Enrique Peña Nieto. Uh, he has made it obvious. He said that he wants to undo the reforms. And now, you know, he has the quote unquote proof of corruption in the process of getting the reform passed. Uh, how much do you think this case could change Mexico's energy policy? Well, our policy is going to change a lot, regardless of the route that they are following. As you know, they are using every single executive power to transform the institutional landscape of the energy sector from appointing very minor characters in front of regulatory agencies to simply produce new circulars or directives from the administrative side that are going to make this more difficult to understand and aim to, to gain power and authority in the energy sector. And on the legislative side, they have perfect control of the upper and lower chambers. So they don't really need a good case in terms of corruption to reform the constitution or to transform the, the legal structures in the energy sector. However, the Damocles sword over the sector and over some of the participants of the reform is powerful enough to gain power, authority. And just imagine the Senate nowadays. Most of the ministers and politicians that were uh, prominent in the Peña Neto administration, they are part of the Senate now. And they are just awaiting for the disclosure of new information in the Lozoya case, the political spin of the president. I think they don't need this case for reforming the energy sector, but it's a very powerful tool to control every single political actor that may oppose or, or create an alternative scenario in the energy sector. Well, the Lozoya case is not the only set of corruption allegations flying around in the media in recent weeks. There was also a video 
ostensibly of President Lopez Obrador's brother receiving cash during a campaign back in 2015. What can you tell us about that case? And and also, you know, none of this really seems to have taken that big a toll on Lopez Obrador's approval rating, which has gone down in the last couple months, but he's still pretty resilient at about 56%. You know, this may be a question as much as a Mexican citizen, as much as anything else. Why has he been impervious to these allegations as well as any number of other issues so far during his presidency in terms of his own public opinion? I think what you're portraying is exactly the political ability of the president, which is reframing every single political event in the best possible way. He's capable of translating things that are politically incorrect to say or things that are legally impossible to be said from from a technical standpoint like yours or mine. But as a talented communicator, you know, he, he can reframe a lot of the things that are happening, which is not the case, for instance, with the COVID-19 case or the economy, because it's impossible to reframe minus 17% of growth. People feel it in their pockets. In this case, it's relatively simple to explain what is happening. He simply said that it was a collection from independent citizens, not the support from the people bringing money in cash to support his campaign. As you know, Mexican regulations are very tough on the use of cash in campaigns, but he has been creating a very complex scenario for the electoral authority, the National Electoral Institute, which is constitutionally autonomous. And he has been pressing really hard in terms of the reputation of the electoral institution. So by the time something like this video appears, he's perfectly capable of reframing it, and they have a very threatened electoral authority, which is going to be the one responsible of addressing this kind of issue. So the only narrative is his narrative. As you have seen in the Mexican media, the Electoral Institute made an official statement about this investigation, but it it didn't have the political consequences of what López Obrador did in his press conference. I think probably his biggest fear as president right now is the economic crisis. And another issue that is not making the headlines, but I think it's becoming harmful politically for him, which is the the growing feminist movement in Mexico. He's a very conservative politician in terms of civil rights. It's perfectly known and credited. And I think he's much more concerned about that than of the possible scandal of his brother. When you have been following López Obrador for a long time, you know that if he has to prosecute his minister of finance, like he did when he was mayor of Mexico City, he's going to do that. If he had to prosecute his own brother to preserve his political leadership, he for sure is going to do that. He's not going to do it immediately, but if he has to, he will do it. That's interesting. And just explain to me the quote unquote threat that he sees from the feminist movement. Why exactly is that threatening to him, you think? Because it's a popular movement that is affecting 51% of Mexican population. He has been highly criticized by this very diverse and complex feminist movement because of the positions that he's holding. You know, he doesn't buy any of the new demands of these kind of social movements. And the peak of the feminist movement in Mexico was March 8 and 9. There was actually a national mobilization that included the private sector in terms of paralyzing the Mexican economy in order to gain better conditions for women in Mexico. 
and the declaration of emergency happened a, a week after that. So he knows that he's going to come back and he doesn't know how to deal with it. And the demands are bigger than the kind of social policy that the government may present. Even if you review his record as Mexico City's mayor, which is the most progressive state in the country right now, he wasn't really in favor of, of these kind of civil rights uh, movements. You're a member of civil society, Eduardo. Another area where he's had some confrontations has been with basically people from the same world you come from, uh, organizations that have also included uh, Mexicanos Contra la Corrupción, the publication Nexos. How, how severe a threat do you think that poses to the work that yours and other organizations do? And generally, what's the climate like for you right now? The thing is that, you know, Mexican civil society for years operated on a very prominent but parallel route to the one in government. And, you know, politicians relatively knew how to deal with this. They knew that we were going to focus on human rights. We were going to play our traditional role with think tanks in Washington, D.C. or in Geneva in using the Inter-American Court of Justice. But what happened in 2015 and 16 is that Mexican civil society evolved in something different and was capable of building coalitions that range from the top-level business community, what we call the Consejo Mexicano de Negocios, the Mexican Business Council, to those organizations in uh, human rights movement in the Sierra Negra de Puebla or in Guerrero. And they were not ready for that. When I say they, I mean the political class. They didn't know how to, to struggle with a, with a diverse coalition that put focus, for instance, in anti-corruption, which is technically sound, connected globally, that has the capacity not only of demanding things, but proposing legal and institutional changes. Be aware, Brian, that Mexico is the only country where civil society didn't demonstrate against corruption, but went to propose a set of uh, anti-corruption reforms that civil society crafted. So it's a, it's a civil society quite different from the one that they were used to. And they also have a lot of influence in public opinion. So not being opposition parties, not being part of the traditional uh, political game, uh, they didn't know how to play with it. So President López Obrador was perfectly conscious about that. Uh, one of the examples is that he had to make uh, a public disclosure of his assets and interests because the, the social pressure of, for instance, Tres de Tres, a movement that was in place in 2018, made impossible to any of the political candidates to the presidency to to run without disclosing their interest and assets. So I, I think he knew that he had to, to immediately block that, that sector. And he's been relatively successful. So the threat is growing. And, you know, he's trying to, as many other countries, Hungary, Ukraine, Russia, to portray these groups as enemies of his project. I wouldn't say that we are in the in the moment that Yemen or other other countries have already reached, but I think it's a permanent threat to civil society. Eduardo, final question for you. I lived in Mexico City for a year back in 2004 as a reporter, um, and it's a country that I, I love and have been back to on many occasions since. In recent years, you know, I, I follow Brazil much more closely, and my dark secret is that I speak Spanish now with a with a slight Brazilian accent. And when I when I'm back in Mexico, and especially during the years of kind of peak. Lava Jato, I'm talking about 2015, 2016. And I would talk to people about what was happening with the car wash investigations and 
particularly Sergio Moro, back when he was, you know, a federal judge and before he went into government and his story became more complex. And Mexicans always had the same question about Sergio Moro when he was a judge, which was, why is he still alive? And, you know, that question always left me very upset and a bit pessimistic about Mexico's judicial environment, because I think it spoke to an uh, an expectation that people who try to, you know, oversee big judicial cases are running many different kinds of dangers, including the danger of their own mortality. You've sketched out a picture here, at least on the sort of criminal and juridical uh, stage that is is pretty pessimistic, I think, about, you know, where the Lozoya case is going to go. When you think about, you know, an opportunity for actual improvement in the anti-corruption climate in Mexico, I know this is a, a very complex subject, but what is what is the one thing to you that would be most important in ensuring that we get cases in the future that are less politicized and more based on, you know, the substance of the case? I, I will agree with you, but not in the case of, of Moro, which is a more prominent and talented political figure of the Odebrecht case. Maybe I will say that the most important player right now in Mexico is the equivalent of, of Deltan, the prosecutor in the Brazilian case. I understand that there are technical differences between our countries, but what I'm really envy uh, about what is going on in Latin America is Juan Domingo Perez, not necessarily the court system of Peru. I will say that the reason why civil society and academics are so much concerned about the real independence of the attorney general's office is that the, obviously this is an organic thing. No? You, you need an attorney general that works and you also need judges that serve the purpose of sentencing people that are responsible of, of felonies or crimes. But but I will say that the missing link in Mexico is not in the judiciary, it's in the attorney general's office. No? Being politically selective, using the information for leaks, playing a different role from the role of justice is something that has happened for too many years. You know, the PGR, the former PGR, no? La Procuraduría General de la República, which in many ways is, is one of these uh, areas of the Mexican justice and security system that is not working. So I will say that if, if I only had one chip no, and I had to invest it in one game, it would be to really improve the Attorney General's office. I think with all their limits and constraints, the judiciary system at this level of discussion, you know, for major cases, is relatively sound and effective. But I wouldn't say that the Attorney General's office is as independent as it should be and as technically prepared to deal with these issues as they should be. Eduardo, thank you so much for this very thoughtful, wide-ranging interview. I hope that we get to do it again soon. I appreciate very much the opportunity, and I hope that it, it creates some space for better conversations. Thanks for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Katie Hopkins. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas. This has been Brian Winter. Thanks for joining us.